You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I get to interview someone who I've had I think I've had more requests to interview this gentleman than anybody else, and my guest today is Mark Rashid. So Mark Rashid's an internationally known author and horseman, and he probably something that's interesting about Mark is he has studied the art of the martial art of Aikido for quite a long time and has bought uh, a lot of the a lot of the mindset from Aikido, which teaches the way of harmony into working with horses you know mark's been a guest on npr's the horse show and he was featured on the nature series on pbs he's the author of 14 books including considering the horse horses never lie life set lessons from a ranch horse horsemanship through life whole heart whole horse journey to softness finding the missed path as well as my favorite title a good horse is never a bad color he also has three music cds so he's a musician as well which are Song of the Prairie, Making Good Time, and My Western Town, which were recorded with his good friend Brad Fitch. But uh, I'm so excited to have Mark on here and, and get to know a little more about him. I met him once a couple of years ago, but uh, yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. So let's get Mark Rashid on the line. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Warwick. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. It has been a few years now. It was... Uh, Oh, maybe Equine Affair in Columbus, Ohio, maybe, or Massachusetts, one of those. I believe that's right, yeah. So here we are. Mark, you are a horseman, musician, author, Aikido aficionado. What is it it you can't do? Um, Well, I'm sure there's a lot of things I can't do, but I try not to think about that too much. You know, out of uh, every once in a while, I'll I'll put out on my social media. Um, who who would you like to have as a who would you like me to have as a podcast guest? And I think your name pops up more than anybody, more than any other single one name. So you must be uh, must be making an impact somewhere. No, oh, that's really nice. I I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm very kind of people to do that. Yeah, it's, yes, it's amazing, amazing position to be in, isn't it? It is. Hard, hard to believe that, you know, just uh, spending some time with horses and uh, that, that sort of resonates with folks. And and that's nice. It's great. Yeah, I think it's amazing. So let's, let's be, to get started, let's talk about your books. How many books have you written? Um, I think it's 13 or 14. Yeah. Uh, and how long, how long a span was that? My first one uh came out in 1992 i believe and then the last one came out about three years ago and at this point i'm kind of done writing books i think so i'm 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 actually spending my time my writing time on uh um movie scripts so that's uh, movie scripts yeah do tell i'm excited now do tell 
Yeah. No, um, one of my books, uh, Out of the Wild, which is a novel, uh, that got picked up. And so I wrote the script for that. And the movie came out two or three years ago. And then I've just been writing scripts ever since and picked up a, a manager this past year. And um, so that's been going pretty well. I've won several awards with uh, the scripts that I've written several of the scripts that I've written and uh, it's going really well. So uh, nothing, nothing's sold other than the first one yet, but, uh, but we've got some irons in the fire. And so the, the first one that sold that was made into a movie, was it, what sort of movie? Was it like an indie flick? Did it? Yes. It is? Yeah. It was a, it was an indie thing. Um, unfortunately we picked up um, one of the producers, uh, and this is not a, uh, I'm not disparaging at all here, but one of the producers was, it was his first time out. And so he, uh, he ended up getting the distribution deal, which was not that good of a deal. And so um, the movie did really well. It didn't get in theaters. It did. Uh, it went straight to DVD and uh, sold out nationwide in Amazon and um Walmart within the first week and then uh and when I think they I think it streamed for about 6 months or so and then now it's just on DVD so tell us about your first book uh how does what what was the you know what was the the thing that said you need to write a book did someone talk you into the book did someone suggest you write a book did you think i should write a book did you get some divine intervention what was the start of your your first book that's a really good question uh i get that all all the time and and it was it's funny i was uh i was teaching horse training we were using mustangs for that at the time and um one of the students said that they had a uh her husband had a horse that he was having trouble getting along with and they wanted to sell him and could i come over and take a look at him and see uh see what he'd be worth and so i went over and and you couldn't catch him so i i spent a little time with him there and got me to where he could catch him and and once you got him caught um he didn't want to stand tied so we worked on that a little bit and then once we did that he didn't want to be saddled and groomed and so we spent a little time on that and then uh once we did that then he wouldn't want to let you get on uh, so we spent a little time on that. Once he got on, he wouldn't go. And we spent a little time on that. And then once he would go, then he wouldn't stop. We spent some time on that. And um, after a little while, um, it turns out he was a pretty nice horse. And so the uh, the husband uh, asked if I'd ever, and that, but he kept the horse, by the way. He held on to the horse. But he uh, he asked if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And I told him I hadn't, you know, I'd written a couple of articles at the time. I had written some articles for Western Horsemen. And um, so I said, I hadn't really thought about writing a book. And and he said, well, if you ever if you ever do want to write one, let me know. I'll I'll give you a hand. And I was thinking, you know, what you got a typewriter or, or what, you know. So um, but anyway, a couple of weeks later, he called me up and he said, have you given any more thought to that book we talked about? And I said, I haven't given any more thought to it. And uh, he, it turns out that he was he, he ended up being my editor for the first my first half dozen or so books. 
And um, he was the, the uh, publisher that he worked for was just down in Boulder, which is 45 minutes away. And so he said, I'm going down tomorrow and I can pitch, I can pitch the book if you want, you know, they're looking for horse titles. And um, so we kind of spent two hours on the phone and figured out kind of what, if I wanted to write a book, what it would, I wanted it to, to read sort of like a James Harriet book and look uh, like a Will James book from back, you know, the old Will James books. And um, he went down and he pitched it and um, they bought it. And, and that was that. The very first review that we got was that uh, they said I was a Colorado clone of James Harriet. And um, so the book just took off. And within, um, gosh, just within a couple of weeks, the first printing sold out. And they didn't think it was going to sell. And so they didn't advertise it. They just sent it out to some magazines. And the marketing guy didn't think it was going to sell. So he wanted actually to cancel the contract on the book. But um, my my editor said, no, just keep writing and I'll stall him. And that's what he did. And uh, at back then, the way that they the, the editors worked was, or the way that publishing worked was that you had certain titles would go into production in certain parts of the year. And um, he stalled them long enough to where they couldn't find another author to get another title in my spot. So that, it just basically you know, I, I got the book by default and, uh, and here we are. So, so there you go. Have you, have you stayed with the same publishers the whole time? No, uh, uh-uh, no. Uh, I was with, um, Johnson books for quite a while and, uh, gosh, 10, 10 years, maybe, maybe 15. Um, and then they got bought out and then I was with that publishing company and then they wouldn't pay me. And so I got all my titles back and then another uh, publishing company out of New York bought them and they still have them. And then, and since then I've written books for two other companies. You know, it's funny how, you know, I've had the same thing. You start out as a horse trainer. That's, that's just what you do. That's Mm -hmm. what you're doing. And then these other opportunities come up and it seems to be like our lives are kind of, dictated to by our abilities to say yes to things yes i would i would absolutely agree with that i would absolutely agree with that and 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 it's and i don't know where it came from with me because you know i grew up you know rural australia uh you know farming community and and there the whole the whole point of life is you go to school you get a job you get married you have kids you die that's that's about it there's you Mm -hmm. know it's not and it's, and I don't know where, I don't know where it came along somewhere along the line, but everybody I meet that is doing stuff that other people look up to, that people are excited about, like, I wish I could do what that guy did. That guy said yes more than he said no, I think. Yes. I, I, I really, you know, I've always been a firm believer that anything that you want in this world is out there. and. It just sort of floats around, and all you have to do is just take a hold of it and go with it. And if you don't do it, somebody else will. It's because it's going to pass you by. You know, it, it'll come along at, at a certain time. It stays for for you know however long, a week or 
two to two hours or a year, and then it moves on. And uh, that's all, I've always believed that. And if you don't take a hold of it when it shows up, it's just it's going somebody else is going to get it, which is fine, you know. But you know, if it's something that you want, you should take a hold of it when it shows up. You know, that's the second time I've heard that exact story from a writer. Well, the first one, I didn't hear it from a writer, I read it in a book. Have you ever read Big Magic? I have not. So it's by the lady who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, yeah. My wife, I think, I think she read that book. And, and, and in that book, you know, she was saying how she wrote a number of books before Eat, Pray, Love took off, you know, because she's a writer. She's not, she's not in it for the money. She's, she's an artist. She's a writer. And um, but anyway, after she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, she then got this idea to write a book about a family-owned oil company in Canada. There's a father and a son, and there's a lady that works in the office. She's the office manager, and anyway, the son decides he's going to go to South America to drill, to drill for oil in South America, and he goes down there, and he disappears. And the dad's got to run the company, so the lady in the office says, I'll go to South America and find him. This is, this is a book she's going to write. It's in her mm-hmm. head. It came to her like, I'm going to write this one of these days. Mm-hmm. And it mulled around there for a while, and she went to a wasn't sure if it was a writing conference or something like that. And she met another author that she was a a fan of that she'd never met before. And this lady, of course, was a fan of hers and they'd never met before. When they first met, like, hey, they knew who each other was, Mm -hmm. gave themselves a big hug. How's it going? And they, they, you know, became fast friends for that two days at this conference or whatever it was. Then they don't see each other for two years, but they write back and forth. They don't Mm -hmm. email, they don't phone call, they write old fashioned letters. And the next time they meet up, two years later, um, she's kind of lost this book. You know, mm-hmm. so the Eat, Pray, Love Lady, it's not there. It's just not coming. She's, it's, it's gone away. I don't know why. Anyway, so she says to this other lady, how's it going? And the other lady says, yeah, I've, I've got this book. I'm almost finished. And she goes, well, what's it about? She goes, well, it's about a, a family-owned oil company in Canada and there's a father and a son, and she tells basically the exact same story. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gilbert, I think is uh, Eat, Pray, Love Lady, she says, really? And how long have you had the idea for this book? And she goes, well, it came to be around the time that we met. Hmm. Yeah. And the whole, that whole thing about that book, she says, you know, exactly. I mean, I've never heard anybody say it exactly the same way you said it, except her, where these ideas float around in the, you know, in the, collective consciousness sort of thing and when they come to you if you don't use them they flap their wings and fly away and Mm -hmm. land somewhere else yeah i've i've always been a firm believer in that and um and it's just you know for me there's certain things that i've always wanted to do in my life and and uh, opportunities have always shown up or i've taken the initiative to go to go do it and uh and so as a, as a result, I have, you know, a few irons in the fire. And I think, you know, with, I think your attitude about everything in life is, is, is what gets you there. You know, you, you're either open to things, you're not open to things. And I, and I really find that a lot with helping people with their horses, their, their outlook on what's happening is more important than what's happening. They're, 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 the response to what's happening is probably, um, you know, whether they view what's happening as good or bad is what makes it good or bad. What did Shakespeare say? Nothing is good or bad. Only 
thinking makes it so or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing with the thing with horses is that for them, nothing is good or bad. You know, it, their, their, their behavior or, or whatever it is that they're doing has no value to them. It only has a value when we put a value on it. So, you know, behavior is just behavior until we say it's bad or good. And the horse to the horse, it doesn't matter to them. It's just behavior. They're just, you know, they can't distinguish between the way they feel and the way they act. So they're just going to act the way they feel. And so, um, for, you know, for me, it's trying to find a way to leave that judgment out of it. And the same thing with people, you know, they, they're, they're just struggling, you know, most of them that, that are having trouble, you know, and if, if we can leave the judgment out of it, we can usually get to the bottom of things a little quicker, you know? So. Yeah. That, that whole judgment thing, one of my earlier podcasts, I talked about, um, how, and I, and I, we talked right at the very beginning of this, we said we hadn't seen each other for a while and I'm thinking it could be four or five years. Mm, yeah. I think. Yeah. And well, in that four or five years, so about five years ago, my wife bought a, a new reining horse that had a couple of little behavioral issues, not in the reining part. That was fantastic. But a couple of little behavioral issues that I thought, yeah, I can fix that. I can fix anything. And I couldn't. And mm. he really made me take a step back from the way I was looking at things and start to look at things a bit differently. And that kind of led me down a, a whole I don't know, personal development rabbit hole too. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but one of the things I found in that personal development rabbit hole was when you can get rid of judgment about things, change, change that perception. And it was actually a, a technique I learned, uh, at a group therapy I was going to, they, they said this week for homework, we want you to count your judgmental thoughts. Mm. And they said, uh, you know, either put some pebbles in, in your pocket and every time you have a judgmental thought, move them to the other pocket or get one of those little clickers like a, you know, like a bouncer or the mm-hmm. dormant yeah. conduct, train conductor and just count your judgmental thoughts. And, and I thought, well, that'll be easy. I'll, I'll have about three during the day. So I'll get three rocks, stick them in this pocket. And by the end of the day, they would have made their way to the other side. Mm-hmm. I had 21 before breakfast the first day. Wow. And, wow. and I've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, but when you start to be aware of your judgmental thoughts you become aware of how many you have but then you become aware of how many you have about yourself and most of us are our own worst enemies and that you know you all that negative self-talk and stuff like that and when you so and all that comes back to to judgment you know like if you can catch yourself judging yourself you can you can reframe that i i talk a lot about brene brown and i don't know if you know who brene brown is mm-hmm um, you know, yeah. she talks about the difference between guilt and shame, you know, shame is I am stupid. Guilt is I did something stupid, which mm-hmm. means I can do it differently next time. So when you really count those judgmental thoughts or become aware of them and you notice that you're your own worst enemy and you say things about yourself, you can go, hang on. No, no, I'm not stupid. Mm-hmm. I just, I just did some, I just made a bad decision right then, but it's all it was. It was a bad decision. I am not bad. I'm not stupid. And for me personally, that's a game changer. Yeah. It makes, makes the world completely different. Yes. Yeah. I would, uh, I would agree with that, you know, and, um, it's, you know, for, 
you know, when I started, I started into martial arts uh, as a way to help my horsemanship. And the art that I chose, which was uh, Aikido, and since then I've trained in several other arts, but um, but Aikido is my primary art. And the thing about uh, Aikido is that there are two things. Well, there's a number of things, but the two main things are that the only way that you can get really good at it is a if you are soft so the techniques are are extremely uh, effective and you can use muscle but it doesn't work as well as if you're soft and you use the technique that's the first one um, but the other part of it is the ego part that you've got to be able to leave your ego behind when and understand that if somebody does attack you, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with that person, you know, could be a lifetime of things that are just happen to show up when you, when you do at the same time. And it's, and so it's that judgment thing again, you know, it's funny how it kind of comes around in different ways, but it's that same thing. And, in, in uh, you know, somebody attacks you, um, n- Defending yourself, Aikido is is uh, the idea behind Aikido is to be able to defend yourself or somebody else, and um, bring the solution to the most peaceful sol- solution possible, while keeping the attacker safe, making sure that they don't get hurt. Um, sometimes that's not possible, but but the but that's the overall goal, and so because that's the goal, then we have to come into it with a certain mindset. Um, and, uh, and again, the leaving the ego behind is, is a big part of that, you know, or, or at least trying to, you know, so, uh, and it's a daily practice and leaving the judgment behind is a daily practice, not something you can turn on and turn off. It's like, it's like being good with horses. You can't just it's like being soft with a horse. You can't just turn it on and turn it off. You have to practice, in my opinion, you have to practice it, you know, all day, every day. You have to find ways to practice your softness in everything that you do all the time. And if you can do that, then we're going to have, at least from my experience, we're going to have a lot better success with, with working with horses or people or dogs or or you know, just going through life in general. Yeah, I had been going to ask you uh, what initially led you to the martial arts, and so you've answered that answered that question there. How long have you been doing Aikido? I think it's around 30 years okay. now. Yeah. So um, I started, you know, I wasn't interested in moving up the ranks or anything like that. I was primarily interested just in the philosophy of the art and, um, and getting better, getting, just getting better, get better as a person, you know, better as a horseman, you know, better, a better parent, uh, uh, a better friend, um, a better husband, you know, I just wanted to be better. And, what I was doing, I felt like I just was kind of stuck and I I wasn't moving forward. And over time, 
you know, you hit plateaus and you don't, you know, it's nothing to worry about. You just hit them. But I felt like I was, I'd been there for a while, a long while. And so, um, I had been studying, studying the art, not actually training in the art for quite a while and, and all of the pieces and parts to it. And then it turns out that there was a really good instructor here in town in our little town here. And uh, so that's where I started and I trained with him. I still train with him to this day. And, um, so, and I've also had the opportunity to train with, uh, some of the top masters in the world. One of them is down in Boulder, just down, you know, 45 minutes away. And, um, uh, and it's and working with him has been uh, an education on um, all of the above, everything that I just talked about. Because he's, I've never met anybody quite like him, quite honestly. And uh, uh, just as a person, but certainly as a martial artist, he's uh, just an amazing, amazing person. Uh, and where did he learn it? Oh, that's a really good question. He. So the, the founder of the art, um, Mariah Yushiba, who is referred to as Osensei, um, he, uh, kind of the, the way the lineage works is that um, there's the master and then there's a, what's called an Ushideshi. And the Ushideshi takes care of the master's um, needs and teaches his classes. So it's a, a senior student, more or less. and. Um, so Satomi Sensei is was O Sensei's one of O Sensei's Ushideshi's, and um, Akeda Sensei, who is uh, my teacher, uh, was one of Satomi Sensei's Ushideshi's. So that's where he learned it. So he was very very close to the originator of the art. And where was this? Japan. It was in Japan. Okay, that's yeah. what I was trying to get at. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it, it brings probably this. Would you say that uh, Aikido brings a lot of, say, like a, a Buddhist type philosophy with it? Um, I think it's that's a really you know it's funny because people I've had more people ask if I'm Buddhist over the years, then, then I can even, uh, at least, you know, once or twice a month, somebody will ask me that question. And, um, I don't see myself that way, but, um, and the art doesn't really preach that so much. Um, it's about harmony. So Aikido is actually three words. Then the words translated basically means the way of harmony. And so, it's about being in harmony with the universe, really. Yep. yep. You know, as far as the big picture goes. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't asking if they uh, they you know promote Buddhist philosophy, but it seems the little bit I know about it and the stuff I know about Buddhist philosophy, they they line up. I mean, think about this: if 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 you were to translate uh, Tom Dorrance's words into maybe written differently someone could think that person was a Buddhist. You know, the whole harmony thing, the whole, you know, going with, you know, I just, it's, it's, it's just, a, I'm not, and I'm not referring to this Buddhism like 
a religion. I'm thinking about it as like a, just a philosophy of a, 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 just a, a way of harmony, a way of connection with the universe, connection with everything, uh, harmony with everything. That that kind of outlook. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would agree with that. Yeah, and you know, there's the guy that I learned very when I was very very young uh, that that was how he looked at the world you know that we should all be working it should all come together you know and it seemed like he could just get along with a horse and never have to raise his hand and never have to raise his voice and and he just always got along with them and you know he got along with people he hardly talked at all you know i mean it was usually just me and him at the place and so i figured if he was talking he was probably talking to me but he hardly ever used my name and um and I never used his name. You know, we would, it, it was, that's just kind of how it worked. And so, um, but there's, there's so many, uh, you know, the way that I, I, I look at it is that there's, it's the natural way of being, it's a natural way of going. And so um, why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be a lot of roads going to that place you know whether it's like you say tom tom and and his teachings or aikido or um, ballroom dancing or you know whatever it's that you know we're we're designed i think to to want to be that way we're designed to want to work together with our environment and with um you know other beings and other people. And, you know, that's kind of how we're, we're, that's, and that's how we're supposed to be. So it, it doesn't surprise me too much that, um, that it wouldn't come, you know, that things like, you know, that it wouldn't either branch out or come together in that way. Well, yeah, I was, I um, was talking to someone just today, actually, who's been all around the world to different, um, some of them hunter gatherer tribes, some are herder tribes, but you know, indigenous peoples. And he mm -hmm. was saying how the philosophy is all the same and they've never met each other and they've communicated with each other. Some mm -hmm. are in the rainforest in Australia, some are in Mongolia, some are in the, the Kalahari desert in Africa. Uh, you know, some are uh, native Americans here mm -hmm. in the U S and so, yeah, it's just, we just had that conversation this morning about how they, you know, thousand years ago they'd never talked to each other but they all had this this harmonious way of being mm -hmm. well uh, if you're going to be out there in the middle of nowhere i mean working against nature or working against your people or working against your neighbors is not a good way to go you know i mean it's it's like you know animals you know fight it's fighting is not a productive way of being in in the animal world right. you know within a species you know so it it's not a it's just not productive and so the harmonious part of it is the is the part that keeps us alive really i think so you so you started with the aikido to help with your horsemanship have you have you found it having an ebb and flow backwards and forth, meaning you take that stuff you learn in Aikido, it helps you with the horses, but as you do 
things differently with horses. Has that ever helped you back with the Aikido? Like, does it, does it flow back the other way? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a life thing. That's the, you know, that's, it. it's not either or it's one thing. That's what we have to, you know, f- for me, that's the thing that for me, um, is the big eye opener or was the big eye opener, you know, for me, you know, early on, it's one thing it's, you can't separate them. So there's going to be that natural ebb and flow for sure, because it's all one thing. So, you know, the, the work in the dojo absolutely helps my work with horses and vice versa. And so, you know, the, the especially with with working with uh, Ikeda Sensei and the internal softness uh, part, which is something that I have been searching for pretty much all my life, um, and one of the reasons I got into Aikido to begin with. But the internal softness part, that was something that um, Ikeda Sensei was able to. Uh, I was able to glean information from him in the work that, uh, you know, whether it was training with him or, or training in one of his classes or whatever, but the, that was what clicked for me that it's the internal part of softness. That's going to get you the results on the outside. So with a horse, it's, if I'm not coming with internal softness, it doesn't really matter what I do with my hands or my arms or whatever tool I'm using, if, if the inside of me isn't soft, I'm only going to get so much. The inside of the horse won't come through as softly as we want because I'm not giving the best of myself. So it's that part of it that for me is the, you know, it's, it's, it's very, um, it's difficult to, especially at the beginning, it was very difficult to get a handle on. And then as you start, it just little, you get little glimpses of it and you start to, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I I get it now. You know, I'm not good at it, but I get it. And now that I get it, I can work on it. Hopefully I can get better at it. And so, you know, when it comes to this kind of work, working, working with horses, I haven't spent a lot of time studying other horsemen and women i haven't spent a lot of time doing that because i wasn't seeing and feeling what i was looking for i i felt like it was a lot of it was just sort of reinventing the wheel kind of thing and and the same things over and over and over that is and again that's not disparaging to anybody it's just that's was my that's the way i felt about it and once i started I started looking for what I would, you know, I wanted something really specific. And when I started looking out away from the horse world, that's when I started to, things started to fall in place for me. And still is, those things are still falling in place for me. You know, I'm not by any means a master at any of it. So, but I know where I'm going, which is really important. Yeah, I used to read all sorts of horse training articles, books, watch videos and stuff. In the last five years, it's either been uh, the personal development stuff or 
uh, I really read a lot of books about shamanism, like, uh, you know, traditional healers, indigenous mm-hmm. healers. Yeah. Um, uh, you ever heard of Rupert Sheldrake? Yes. Uh-huh. You know, he wrote yeah. the sense of sense of being stared at and he's big on that morphic resonance and that whole cosmic information source. Um, and all that sort of stuff has really helped me with the horses. And, and I've, you know, I've come to what you've been chasing all your life. I've come to it very, very late in life, you know, up to about five years ago, I was always learn. I was always trying to learn more, probably training techniques. That's mm-hmm. what it yeah, was. Yeah. It was more mm-hmm. training techniques. Yep. It was more about the techniques, the cues. And I'll tell you what, I saw when, when I met you in, uh, equine affair, whatever, four or five years mm-hmm. ago, I came and watched your demo in the Coliseum. Like I'm, I want to see what this guy's doing. And mm-hmm. I left there. I thought, I don't know. I don't have a clue what that guy's talking about. Oh. <laughs> and and now it's like, oh God, yes, I've experienced all that stuff. I've, I've, I've stumbled upon it and, um, I've only just begun, but it's like the curtains have been pulled apart and I can now see through this window that's now clear. It's like, oh, that's, that's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty. And you can't, and you can't go back. Oh yeah. There's no, you can't unsee it. And especially for me, seeing the difference in the horses. Mm-hmm. Like I, I yeah. was, I was quite well educated at training horses, mm-hmm. which was a, a bit of a one way street as in I'm giving them information mm-hmm. and now it's more, it's more this back and forth thing. And it's a lot more, it's a lot more listening than it is talking. And the, the difference in the horses, the, like the, the, the insides of the horses come out and you talked a minute ago a bit about what was it, internal softness. Is that what you're yeah. talking mm-hmm. If yeah. someone was, and I think I grasp what you're talking about, but if someone was listening to this five minutes ago, like what the hell is he talking about? You think you could expound a little bit more on how you could describe that to someone? Yes. Um, there is a term in Japanese and the term is Mizunokokoro. And what that means is a mind like still water. So the idea being that, um, and in terms of martial arts, uh, and especially in Aikido, we're trying, we're striving for Mizunokokoro to have a mind like still water. Okay. So. The busier, the busier, so still water. So let's start there. If you look at a pond in the morning, you know, where there's no wind or anything, and you look in the water and you can see a perfect reflection of everything that's on the other side of the the pond, right? It's a mirror image. And that's the idea in that when you have, when your mind is still and quiet, then you can see things. It's a mirror image. Whatever you're looking at is a mirror image. You can see it for what it really is, okay? If when you start throwing pebbles in the pond, you, the image starts getting distorted, and now you can't see it for what it is anymore. And so the internal softness part is working on developing that mind, that quiet mind, so that you can... So again, we, we began by talking about judgment, and judgment is the is the pebbles are the pebbles egos the the pebbles i mean egos a good thing don't get me wrong it, it, we have to, i think it's an important 
uh, aspect, especially for humans. But um, and everybody has an ego. But but when when should we use it? When do when do we need it? And do we need it all the time? You know, some people do, I guess. And 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 but the idea is to develop that quiet mind. And when you do that, then that's the beginning of it. But there's also exercises, there's specific exercises that you can do where you can quiet the inside of your body. Uh, we actually teach those in um, um, our uh, Ibotto classes. Ibotto is uh, basically Aikido for horsemen, and, uh, which we do in the dojo. And so we, we do a lot of internal, a lot of internal stuff when we do those things. And um, at some point, if you're ever around and you want to come do one of those, you're more than welcome. I'm, love I'm to excited have you. already. Um, but the idea, the idea basically is, you know, to be able to feel yourself, what's going on in, in you before you take it. And then being able to, uh, to carry that with you into a situation that may not be as comfortable as we want it to be. How can you stay soft internally when, you know, somebody's coming at you with a knife or somebody's or a horse is jumping around on the other end of the lead rope or, you know, or whatever. It's carrying that internal softness into everything you do so that you can, this horse is just, again, back to what we were saying before, it's just behavior. It has no value. That's that's seeing it, the horse's behavior with Mizu no Kokoro, with a mind like still water. Same thing with people, you know. If we if we try to look at things without the judgment, if we just try, we make the effort, eventually we start getting better at it. You know, we don't practice that. You know, we get good at the things we we practice. And we only practice the things we're good at. So, you know, we don't we don't like practicing things we're not good at because we're not good at them. And so, you know, but if you start, if we just start a little bit at a time and before long, you know, we start getting better at at leaving the judgment behind. And and eventually it becomes a way of life. And and then we start seeing things clearer and then we can we're able to handle things a little bit differently whether it's with our horses or with the people that we are dealing with or our dogs or <laughs> or whatever you know so it so it's that that part of the internal it starts with that seeing working on seeing things for how they are without making up a story around it it just is what it is you know that starts there and then there's actually the physical things that you can do to soften the inside of your body that um, you know, we don't have time to go into here, probably, but um, but there are physical things you can do to actually soften and feel the softness inside yourself. Can you give me like just the the tiniest glimpse of that? The the, the way the, it yeah, the physical things, you know. You know, if you think about if you think about it. More times than not, and um, most people, not all people, not, but mo most people, what will happen when I'm, I'm going to use getting on a horse, just getting on a horse. Most people, when they get on a horse 
when they first throw a leg over are going to feel some, if they pay attention, they will feel some sort of angst. Maybe at a really low level, but they're going to, if they pay attention, they'll feel it. If they don't pay attention, they won't. And it that's the beginning of a, a breakdown of the internal softness. And because I'm because we're probably judging something's going on in there, you know my my horse could do A, B, or C. I could get unseated. I could, oh, but that's not going to happen. I've been on this horse a hundred times. Okay, so you know we go from throwing a leg over, having that little bit of angst. If we pay attention, right? You got to pay attention to see if it's there, and then moving. Eventually, you move past that into, okay, now I feel better. It's that, okay, now I feel better. How do we get that before we throw the leg over? Is That's one way of looking at it, that there's, there's more. But when you feel the angst, if, that, if you do, where is that in your body? So where, where is that? Where, where do you feel it? You know, does it feel like a knot? Does it feel like you know a low level electrical hum you know people to describe it in different ways but um or fear some some people would describe it as just outright fear but where is it where does it most people feel it sort of in their solar plexus more more or less is where they feel it and um and then that what that does is it causes them to feel top heavy so when they get on their horse, they automatically start feeling top <laughs> top heavy because, you know, they're they're actually bringing their center up into their chest or even up into their head. Some people, um, it's even above their head, so their center goes uh, above them. So anyway, those are just a couple of little things, little that you can kind of pay attention to and and feel. That can, and if you get a handle on it, you can turn it around. I think the the reason I asked that question because I was I was wondering if I've wondering if I'd experienced anything like that or if I knew anything about it. And in my journey of the last five years, I have come to realize well, the horse that my wife bought, the reason I couldn't change much about him is because he was very very shut down, mm. like very just mm-hmm. in his own head, yeah. and obedient as all get out. Okay, obedient, but just in his head. And it, what it basically led me to find out was that I'd been the same way all my life. Mm. I'd been shut down in my life and it was so normal for me. I didn't know there was another way to be, which mm. means I really had no internal sensations. Yeah. He needed yeah. to, he needed to show up, didn't he? Oh yeah. Hell yes. <laughs> I got him for the re- reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in my deep dive into all that sort of stuff, I've got some of this working and some like, I, I kind of got into meditating and some of the meditations that I do that, that focus on like chakras, like energy centers in your body. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'll do some of these meditations and I will be buzzing all over, which is stuff I'd never felt before. Mm-hmm. It almost got to where I can sit down and get in a position to meditate. And even before I close my eyes, my feet will start tingling my legs. It's like the hair on the back of your neck standing up, but it's uh, all over your body. And, and mm-hmm. you know, these, uh, these things, I think you need to be able, you need to have that to get to what you're talking about. 
but I've been sharing this for quite a while with with people, and it's amazing how many people who are the same who are they're in their heads, they're not in their body. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, you've got to gonna, you know, I've I've seen like somatic experiencing therapists and things like that, and done somatic experiencing stuff to where you can you get in, you know, first I think you've got to get into your body. And I've only just started working on oh, probably the last year or two asking horses to move with energy and i remember watching a watching a youtube videos of yours a number of years ago total honesty here so here's mark sitting on this horse it's outside and he's talking about a lot of people you know use their legs to get them to go but i'm just going to take my my i forget what you said maybe my chi or whatever you said i'm just going to project it forward and the horse goes forward and i'm thinking he kicked him with his leg on the other side he must have mm. done because mm. he didn't do anything and I've really started to experience being able to um, ask with an internal mm-hmm. energy, and I think that's their first language. I think that's yes. their, that's I think that's their first ask before anything else. And and I've found and I've found for me personally, I think it's the best thing for shut down horses. And I think horses shut down because they are usually very sensitive, and the asks are too big off the bat and they go inside their head and like the, the shutdown horse that I talked about that my wife bought mm-hmm. five years ago, we still have him. And now you walk out the back door, his ears are pricked, his head's up, he's looking at you, you walk up to him, he's engaged. You know, when you lead him, he's, you know, he's mm-hmm. engaged, he's beside you. But I start, what I started doing with him was having that, that, that internal energy be my first ask. And I mean, you've been doing this for, you know, so long that your beard's gray, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm new to it, but it's, I'm just so excited about it. Like a kid with a new toy, because it's like this whole realm of possibility has kind of opened up before me, you know, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. It's well, we, when we're talking with, with our riders, that's our goal is to get them. I, I mean, it's been really clear for me that, if we bring ourselves internally to the, you know, so, so often what we're doing is we're asking the horse to do something, but we aren't doing it. You know, we're telling them to do it and we're getting left behind if they go. But if we can, if we can be engaged in, in the things that we're asking our horse to do before we ask them physically, it doesn't take very long for them to start moving when you start thinking. When you start asking through a, the feel of it or the thought of it, which is basically turns into the feel of it, when we start doing, when we start there, if we start there and if we can train ourselves to start there every time, regardless of whether the horse actually does it, if we have to back it up with a physical cue or whatever, until the connection is made, until they start, because a lot of horses are taught not to pay attention to that anyway. I feel like that's where they live. Uh, you know, that that's, uh, I agree. I couldn't agree more that that's, that's where they, that's the, that's the level they communicate at. I mean, that, all you have to do is watch horses in a herd to know that they don't have to yell at each other to get a response. They can, they can do it without even looking at each other and get a response. So if we can train ourselves to be able to, ask internally first and then if we need the backup cue the x the 
external cue until until the internal part is just there and so you know the the video that you saw was with uh, our horse rocky and you know i've rode him every day for years and years and years and and that's with every horse that i get on i start with the internal part and then if i need to and so i've got a horse now that i've had for about a year and now all pretty much all of what we do is working it's all internal now transitions are internal stops are internal um as long as you but you can't do it you can't ask internally five times and on the sixth time you don't it has to be every time you know it's that consistency part of the, the more consistent we can be the more consistent the horses can can be i uh just recently started a five-year-old andalusian mare and i haven't started a horse for five years because i haven't been training horses for the public right for that long right. so mm-hmm. but but i've been doing lots of clinics all around the world and i've been basically experimenting with this stuff 12 horses at a time two days for two days mm-hmm. and then i the next weekend i've got another 12 horses for two days so i've really been experimenting with this stuff for the last couple of years but i've never i have not started a horse with this in mind so this mm-hmm. andalusian mare i started recently like i videoed the whole thing but i'd go okay so i'm just gonna bring my energy up now i'm gonna use my seat oh look good she went oh that's good and you know i do that a few times and now i'm gonna bring my energy up oh my god she moved and i look at the mm-hmm. camera like she moved maybe that was a fluke and then the next time she did and then i'd be walking like i think i'm going to go up into a trot and i kind of just think about it and off she'd go and it's like Mm -hmm. i was like a kid in a candy store but yeah but i think okay great way to communicate with horses give yourselves a clap i think that's great but i think even more important than that at least for me is it's mental health support because I've spent all my life in my head, mm-hmm. not in my body. And so for this to work, the first thing I have to do is get in my body. Mm-hmm. And you can't be in both places at the same time. So it keeps me out of my head. And I, and I Well, think- it's, the, it's the feel that everybody talks about. What you're talking about is feel, right? You are, you're creating... You're creating the thing in your body that you that you want. If you were on the ground by yourself, you would be you wouldn't have to think about how you were going to move forward, right? You would just do it. And and there's no reason why. Yeah, and the same thing with a horse. They don't have to think about moving forward. They just go forward. Our job is to find that connection point between us and them. And so the way that I, I look at this is that um, for, for, the, for a long, the longest time, I've, I, I really tried to find ways to get people to connect to their horse. And after I started working with Ikeda Sense, I realized that I was, I was doing it backwards. It's not about me connecting to the horse. It's about the horse connecting to me. But I have to find a way to allow them to do that. And so, so we're, there's two, couple of things that we're really good at. We're really good at creating openings, humans, good at creating openings, and we're good at directing. And horses are good at finding openings and they're good at connecting. 
if I can create an opening, so for instance, where you you start feeling feeling like you're going to go forward, feeling like you're going to trot, right? You know what a trot feels like. If I put that feel in my body, not movement, not through movement in my body, internally, if I put the feel of a trot in my body, that's the opening. The horse can then come through the opening and then connect. And once they're connected, now all we have to do is direct. So we work to our strengths on both ends. I've always felt like, you know, that that if I, it's like, you know, there's a tube that runs between myself and the horse. And when I, when I was trying to connect to the horse, it was like water shooting down into this tube. And in the meantime, the horse is trying to connect too. So this water would, you know, this energy would hit in the middle and there would be this constant struggle back and forth. I'm trying to push my connection down and they're trying to push their connection up. And, and it's hit and miss kind of thing. But if we just create the opening, then they can run right up through the tube and, and make the connection. And now we're off and running. So um, I interrupted you before and I apologize for that. But, uh, but I, I felt like I wanted to get that out before it, 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 before you forget it got that. away. That's, that's one reason I do this, these things on this platform. So we can kind of see each other and like, if someone's leaning forward and got the, the jitters, you know, they're going to, they, you know, you can kind of let them in the door instead of, if, if we can't see each other, you can end up talking over each other mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah. So, but for me, uh, for me personally, um, it's, it's, for me, it's been a bit of a mental health journey because, and, and, and me sharing that I've had so many people are in the same boat. So, you know, it's, mm-hmm. so many people are not in connection with themselves and then they wonder why they can't connect with their horse. You know, uh, my mm-hmm. wife has a friend here in the area who she's a, a therapist, but she does equine assisted therapy. She has a thing called the circle up, uh, the circle up experience. And she has this thing, the, the four, the four parts of a relationship or something. And she says, what's going on? Number one is what's going on with you. Number two is what's going on with them. Number three, what's going on between the two of you? And number four is what's going on in the environment? And she's, and I've seen it, you know, since I've heard about this, I've, I see it all the time. People, when they're having trouble with their horses, are very aware of number two and number four. What my horse mm-hmm. is doing and what's going on in the environment, but, but no idea about what's going on within me or what's going on between me and my horse. So it's, yeah, it's really the, the, the kind of the human factor. Mm. it always boils down to that doesn't it yeah and that's and and i think that's where you know your the the aikido stuff you know it's it's you know the the thing about thing about horses if you want if you want to they'll do whatever you want no matter how bad you are about things so it's not like a skateboard a skateboard if it Mm. doesn't work for me it's me Mm-hmm. If your horse doesn't work for you, it's the bloody horse, you know, yeah, what I mean? right. you know, so it's right, very easy right, to blame right. the horse, but you can't blame the skateboard or the motorbike or the, the whatever, because it's a, you know, it's not a mm-hmm. sentient being sort of thing. And so, uh, but I think you've got to get yourself to the point where you can take that feedback and not, not blame the horse, you know? So that's a, I, I'm, I think I'm kind of lucky because in the fa- last five years, you know, I was probably some now 50 three 
you know, so I was probably 48 and hadn't really evolved much since 17 or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. in, in certain, the ways I, I looked at certain things. And so for me, like someone like you has been working on this forever. You probably don't remember the little increments. You're where you are and there was way, 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 way you were, but there's been so many iterations. I kind of went from one place to a completely different place quite quickly. And I still remember when I was there. And when I was there, I was right. Hmm. You know what I mean? It yeah. worked. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm training horses for other people. I'm doing clinics. People send me horses. They have problems. I send them home. They don't have the problem. They come to the clinic. I fix them. You know, all this feedback saying, you're doing it right. You're doing it right. You're doing it right. And mm -hmm. now I, I, I don't think I was doing it right at all, even though it worked on a level and it worked quite well on a level. I'm at the point now where I can still see that not very long ago. Mm. So it kind mm. of, for me, it takes away the judgment of people, anybody who's not at the same place I'm at. I'm not that I'm at the right or the wrong place, but anybody who's not where I'm at, who is somewhere different, put it that way. I've got no judgment because it wasn't that long ago. I was somewhere different and, and damn it, I was right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, you know, Years ago, I, I was doing a, a clinic in Texas, and uh, this uh, this gal came in, and, and I asked her how much experience she had, and she said, 20 years. And I said, okay. And we went to work, and we did our thing. It was a four-day clinic. And at the end of the four-day clinic, she came up to me, and she said, do you remember when you asked me how much experience I had? And I said, 20 years. And I said, yes, I remember that. And she said, well, that I've realized that's not quite accurate. What I have is one year of experience 20 times. And I think that um, I think that that's where a lot of folks are are at. You know, it kind of sounds like that may have been where you were at, where you, you had the same experience over and over and over and over and over. The thing that I that I really respect about you, Warwick, is that is that at some point. And I believe this in with everybody. I, I really do. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. And you have to acknowledge it. And most people won't. I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people don't. And you did. It didn't feel right. That's that's what that's what changed in you, I think. And and I mean, I'm not trying to speak for you, but but when it doesn't feel right, and it doesn't feel right for a long time, at some point, something's got to give. And, and, you know, kudos to you for, for acknowledging that and then going and searching. You know, that's, that's not an easy thing to do, especially for somebody as, a, you know, as um, in your position. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I had the doesn't feel right thing because I don't think I had enough self-awareness to realize it didn't feel right. I, yeah, I kind of think I had to have that horse come along. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's, I couldn't agree more. Cause I wasn't you know. getting, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting it. And the thing is, uh, you know, I we talked at the start about that saying yes 
thing, mm-hmm. when, when I kind of went, oh, I, I can't change. I mean, I changed quite a bit of stuff about him, but I can't get to the root of this doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I kind of said yes to, okay, taking a step back. You know, I could have said, no, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And then he's going to, yeah, he's going to, he's going to change. He's going to, he's got to change. But for me, I was like, yeah, this, this is not working. And I know what I didn't do was start experimenting with him. Mm-hmm. I stepped completely back and I'm like, he's who he is. I'm not going to try to influence that in any way. Cause at the, at this point in time, I don't know how to influence it. But he's, he's the one that kind of got me. And then I was lucky enough. I'm doing a lot of clinics. So now I start experimenting with horses at clinics that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the, the magic started happening was, was starting to, um, yeah, mess with horses at clinics and uh, just, just with a different outlook on things, you know, more listening, more so. This is way before the, the energy stuff, any of that stuff. It was just instead of, trying to fix them it was more about it was more about communicating my level of awareness of them like you know like if like yeah commu- it's more about communicating to them that i see their level of concern and and you know this whole deep dive into you know personal development and the horses has been kind of the same thing but but lately i've been talking about the like the the parenting style that i grew up with which was stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, you mm-hmm. know? So the kid is concerned about something and the parent says, I'm not, it doesn't, I don't want, I don't want to help you be con- not be concerned. I just want you to shut up and I'm prepared to make, I'm prepared to do something worse to you to make you mm-hmm. stop telling me how concerned you are. And a, it makes me think a lot of horse training techniques that work really well to solve behavioral problems is that mm-hmm. it, it, it just, it makes the, you can do things that make the behavior go away, but you, there's no, what they call attunement. There's that no sense of being seen and being heard. There's that, that no, you know, that, yeah, that level of connection there. And and since I started messing with that, it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of changed really everything for me because a lot of the things I, I, th- I think I used to be very good at, my, my first interactions or my groundwork and stuff with horses was a certain way. And that being that certain way created a lot of problems that I was then very good at fixing. And I was very good at patting mm. myself on the back and say, boy, I'm good at fixing those problems that every horse has. Mm-hmm. Now I realize it was me projecting onto those horses in the beginning, all my shit. And, and then I get really good. All these horses have these problems and then I get really good at fixing them. Now, mm. when I approach horses with a, completely different outlook most of those problems aren't there so right. to realize those problems are me hmm. yeah yeah it's um a lot of you know i i was i was saying before where you know with a lot of what i was seeing in the horse world was just uh same things over and over as far as the work that was being done round pen work you know like you say, the a good example is the idea of making the wrong thing difficult and the right thing easy. And the wrong thing, first of all, it's not right or wrong. It just is what it is. But but if you look at it from that perspective, the wrong thing is already difficult. 
you know, the right thing's difficult too. So we don't need to make it more difficult. We need to find a way to help this horse search for an answer that they can find. Give them, give them a way to, to, to come to the answer, not force them. You know, if they're doing the thing that we don't want them to do, and now I'm going to make that even more difficult, all I'm doing is throwing gasoline on the fire. And eventually they're going to give in because that's what horses do, you know, and then we're going to look really good. The problem is that, you know, every time that we come in the pen with a horse, their anxiety level is going to go back up, you know. And and so we're starting, like you said, from, you know, you're starting behind the eight ball almost right off the bat because I'm creating problems and then I'm fixing them, but I'm not really, you know. I'm just I'm just getting a different response, but I haven't fixed the problem. You know the problem because the problem's me. <laughs> so, and if I don't fix that, it's going to keep coming back. And same thing, you know, with physical issues with horses or whatever. You know, so you yeah. got to fix those things. You know, for me, that whole make the wrong thing hard, right thing easy. It it you know, it's, so it's not like I spent the first forty eight years of my life not changing because i tell you what that whole that whole make the wrong thing hard right thing easy um way of thinking initially the one i first started out with it it was about making the wrong thing hard yeah by the end of it it was all about making the right thing easy that's all it is make we actually Mm -hmm. had a t-shirt we made a few years ago on the back of it it said make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy but Mm -hmm. make was in big letters the wrong, and it said the wrong in tiny little letters, and then it said thing in big letters, and it said thing uh, hard and the right thing in small letters, easy. So from a distance, this shirt said make things easy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I really came to look at it that way. It's not about, it's not about making it the wrong thing hard. The wrong thing's hard enough already. It's just about, mm-hmm. you know, set it up to where, your idea is their idea. You make the, you know, make the right thing easy. But, um, so, you know, there was, there was that progression. Like, you know, I was, I was always getting more and more subtle about how I went about things. And, you know, so there was a, there was progression. It wasn't like I was doing the same thing for 30 years, but it was the same. It was, it was a refined version of the same thing. It was just getting more and more refined of that. It was like I was, mm-hmm. I was speaking one language and I was learning more about that language. I didn't learn French or Arabic or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. And, uh, yeah, the, the stuff that I'm on about now is, yeah, it's a completely different language. But, yeah, that, that whole wrong thing, hard, right thing, easy. I think how you interpret that is just a reflection of how you view the world. If you mm-hmm. have that adversarial um, outlook on life or you have that, that community, that sense of community outlook in life, depending on which, which one of those you subscribe to is, is how you will use that. And I, you know, there was several things I used to do that were along those lines, but I always did it from the, the right thing, easy, um, perspective and it works really well, but I would have people who had done it the same exercise with a different intention behind it and it doesn't work. And they say, mm-hmm. oh, I tried that and it doesn't work. And I, and I really think you're, 
the energy you bring to any technique, you know, your intention behind the technique is, I think it's more important than the actual technique itself. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I had a an Aikido instructor who was getting ready to retire. And I was at his last class. And um, at one point, about in the middle of the about in the middle of the class, uh, the night, he stopped. And he'd been training, I think, for 40 years. And we'd been working on a, a certain technique that everybody knew. And uh, we're just kind of refining. And, and he stopped. And he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a secret. I've never told anybody this before. He said, you know, I spent... I learned all the technique I really needed to know in the first 10 years of my Aikido career. And I've spent the last 30 years trying to figure out how not to use it. The idea being that once you get, once you get the, uh, the technique down, then somehow it's time for us to get to a point where we can transcend the technique and be doing something at a different level, doing the same thing at a different level. And to me, that's, I don't know how many times uh, during a clinic that I've told somebody, you don't need any more technique. You've got all the technique you need. Now we need to see if we can't bring some of you to the party. And when we start doing that, very, very seldom in clinics that we do anymore are we ever talking about technique. It's it's almost all how can you bring yourself, the inside of you, to this thing that you're asking your horse to do? How can you do that? You may need some technique to help that along, and we'll use it if we need it because <clears throat> you got to have it. Technique is good. I'm not saying that you know you you got to throw it out. Technique is good. You got to have it. But how can you transcend it? How can you work towards transcending the thing that you've always done and get it and refine it to the point where you don't really need it anymore? And, you know, I mean, that's a lifelong deal. You, you know, that's not something that, that you're going to ever be able to say, I got it. You know, it's, it's, it's something. I mean, I've been working with horses now for 50 years. and and um, every time I, I do something, it's like, man, I, I didn't do that very skillfully. You know, I, I can get better at that. I can, I can do better with that. And, um, and I try to do better, you know, just keep trying. So, um, going to switch gears here a minute. You mentioned the saying, a mind like still water before. Um, didn't you and Jim Masterson just make a movie called that? Is that what it was? Um, it's, uh, it's a documentary. It's a documentary. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that was not my choice to call it that. Uh, in fact, I was, I was almost dead set against calling it that. And, um, uh, uh I just, for a variety of reasons, but um, cause it's, 
I wanted something in the title, softness to be in the title. And um, I just happened to say, while I was working with one of the horses and riders, I just happened to say that I brought up the concept of Mizuno Kokoro and I explained it. And in the film, they had me bringing it up, but without the explanation. And because of that, I felt like it it did a disservice to the concept. And I felt, you know, by naming the movie that or the documentary that that it that it um it did a disservice to the concept and then thereby the teachers and yep. and um the lineage. And but anyway, yes, the the answer to that is yes. There is a uh, a documentary out, just came out um December. And where where is it available? Like where can people watch it, you know? Um, I think you can get you can get it from us. Um we have some copies here and uh get it off of our website. And but Amazon, I think, and um uh, you can stream it off of Amazon and you can stream it off of uh iMovie, I think. Is I think that's where where it's at. Okay, and uh what is your website? Uh, it's markrashid.com. Oh, okay. That's pretty simple. And it's a brand new website. My wife just, just finished it about a week ago. Oh, cool. Uh, she Yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> I I overmarried, I can tell you that. Oh, me too. My <laughs> my wife uh, my wife does all that technical stuff. And my son. My son graduated a couple of years ago with a degree in, in uh, business. And so he's my he's my He's a he's tech my, guy, huh? He's my business dude, tech guy. And he... Yeah. Uh, he moved home for a year after he graduated college, which was good because he's here all the time. And now he's just moved to Hawaii. He's living his best life in Hawaii <laughs> and he's not here. And like, yeah. when I have a tech problem, I'm on FaceTime a lot. Like, oh, yeah. what's going on with this thing? Yeah. Yeah. And his name's Tyler, huh? His name's Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a son, Tyler too. Oh, really? How old's he? He is 28, 28 or yeah, 28, probably 29 this year. Oh, He's a police officer. Oh, really? Yeah. Where? where? Uh, here in Colorado. Mm, really? Yeah. That's got to be a scary thing. It is. Not quite as scary as when he went overseas. You know, he was in Iraq for a while. Oh, and, that's uh, scary, yeah. 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 So. Well, yeah, so my son, he um, his best friend in college is in, from uh, sorry, his best friend from high school is in the Coast Guard. And who's uh, in Hawaii. And so he said, mm-hmm. well, his name's Robbie. And they play, they play music. You know, they were in a mm-hmm. band together. And awesome. So Tyler, you know, all his work was on the computer. He said, I'm going to move to Hawaii and live with Robbie and surf and play music. So he's, yeah. he's kind of doing that yes thing right now. You know, yeah. like, you know, he gets to work every day, but he also gets to surf on the North Shore. He's He rock climbs there. They hike all the time. He goes swimming with sharks. The other morning they got up early in the morning and went swimming at sunrise to swim with the dolphins and just, mm. and every day it's endless. Yeah. <laughs> that kid is leaving, leading the, yeah. the, the dream life, but but he made it happen too, you know. And yeah, so that's right. We've yeah. got a big sign hangs inside of our front door and it says luck is believing you are lucky. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you really got to do all that sort of stuff. Okay. So we've covered your books or we talked about the books. How, how mm-hmm. many, do you know how many copies you've sold out of all the books? Mil- millions. Yeah. There's, uh, 
they've been around for a while, you know, and, and uh, I think some, I don't really pay a lot of attention to that. That's kind of, um, uh, they still sell, I guess. Um, but I, I, I don't really pay a lot of attention to all of that stuff, but I do know that there's, it's been, it's in the millions at this point and, uh, worldwide. I think they're, I think they've been translated into 12 different languages. Wow. Is there, is there one that has outsold the rest of them? Like, is there one that like really resonated with people? Um, horses never lie. I think I have that one. That, I think I have that one right here. That one did. And, and the first one, considering the horse, those two and, and the, uh, the books where I start talking about, uh, my, my work in, uh, the martial arts, those, those seem to resonate with quite a few people. So, and you know, I've got some in, you know, the the hard copy, but I've got quite a few of them on on uh, audiobook. Oh yeah, and yeah. there was one of them, and you'll have to tell this story, but there was a story in one of them where you just you got you went to you went to the dojo and you just got beat to hell. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I like, I like how, why you got beat to hell. Can you re- relate that story? Cause I think that's a great story. Well, it was, um, it was during a seminar and um, the guy that I was training with at the time was actually one of my instructors. And uh, at the time, I think he was a second degree black belt and I was a brown belt uh, at the time. And so we were working on a hardwood floor. We didn't have mats out. And we were doing a lot of falls. And uh, we, were, we were supposed to um, make sure that our partner didn't hit the, hit, didn't hit the floor very hard. But that, um, uh, that didn't happen with me. I got, uh, got thrown pretty hard for a long time. And uh, it was a three-hour seminar, and at 45 minutes, I looked up at the clock, which I never do. I looked up at the clock, and I thought, man, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive this. And uh, the the instructor, there were two instructors there at the time uh, that were teaching. Um, the, my partner that was also an instructor was not teaching at the time. And they came over to him, and and both of them during the night came over and said, you know, we're not trying to hurt anybody. You know, let's, let's take it easy. Okay. Bam. Down I'd go again. You know, you could hear it throughout the dojo. So bam. And over and over and over. And, uh, at the end of the night, when it it turned out that, uh, we were being tested and I didn't, I had no idea that that that's what was happening. And, uh, so I was, I was, I got my first degree black belt that night. I didn't, I had no idea we were being tested and, uh, and he didn't, he didn't get promoted. I think he was being tested for his third degree and he didn't, he didn't get promoted that night because, um, you know, the idea is in Aikido is obviously not to hurt partner. And so, um, but the interesting thing about that night was I got home and I couldn't get my gi off. Uh, I was so beat up. And uh, I had to leave the next We I think it was the next day or the day after to, we were going out on the road. And so my wife had to help me get my gi off because I, I was having trouble getting my arms up. And and I had, you know, bruises. You could actually see the indentations from my gi 
on my skin, on my body. And I'd fallen so many times. I hit. And when we went out on the road, which was, it was really good that that happened because um, I don't know that I could have gone back in the dojo had I, you know, and when you get promoted, especially to your first degree, you're supposed to be the first one back on the mat, the next, the next class. And luckily for me, I didn't have to do that. I would have had to really think hard. I mean, it was, it did a lot of damage to me emotionally, uh, the beating that I took that night. And, um, but I had about a month and a half to where I could give it some thought and realize that, you know, that wasn't about me. That was about, that was about my partner. And uh, I just needed to do the best I could with what I could do. And, and I went back and, and continued training for another 20 years, <laughs> you know, so. Um, and at, at this point now, you know, we've, we've developed uh, an offshoot of the art, which is the Ibato that I mentioned earlier, um, which uh, translated means, uh, depending on the kanji that you use, it, it can either mean um, for the love of the horse um, or a way of being with horses. So, so I'm glad that I stuck with it. But, but yeah, that was uh, not my best night on the mat. Uh, given the option to change the course of history, would you still have go through that? Yes, but I would have fallen better. (laughs) (laughs) I I know how to fall better now than I did then. (laughs) Uh, good, good answer. Actually speaking of, speaking of that, uh, I've got some questions for you. So as you, you listeners to the podcast know, I send out 20 questions to my guests and I stole those from um, Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors book. And I have them choose four to six to seven of them that they want to weave into the conversation. And I'm going to go through Mark's now because that one right there might have something to do with it. Uh, the first one that you suggested you'd like to talk about is what is your biggest failure and how has it helped you um that's a well first of all i have to admit my wife picked these i didn't i didn't pick them i I gave them to her and she said what do you think and i asked her what i what she thought people would be interested in hearing about so she picked these um did you did you did you read them i did read them okay because i got a question about and a question that's not on here in a minute, but carry on. Okay. Biggest failure. Uh, that's a really good question because we have to, I, I look at it like, you know, we kind of have to define failure. To me, failure is when we stop, you know, something didn't work out and then we stopped and then, and then we were, and then we're done. And that's not something that I've really ever done. Uh, failure for me, I think comes from a couple of things i think i think it's three things uh, when things don't work I, I would say that it's it's when things don't work out the way we want them to and um i would say that the three things would be a lack of we had a it was a lack of skill um a lack of understanding or a lack of patience or a combination of all three that puts us in a position where we get into an endeavor, whatever that is, and it just doesn't work out the way we want. 
if we stop working on it, then we've failed, I believe. <clears throat> if you could keep working at it, then I'm not sure it's a failure. I mean, even if you don't come to the conclusion that you were looking for, I don't, I don't know that that's a failure. And so there's a lot of things I've done over the years, whether it's, whether it's in, you know, woodworking, whether it's uh, working with horses or dealing with people or whatever, where I did not do it very skillfully. But I did it as skillfully as I could at the time. So in my answer about, you know, would I do the thing in the dojo again? I would, but I would have fallen better, right? I know how to do that now. I have, I have more skill at it now than I did then. So, so to, for me, when I, what, what some folks might refer to as failures, and I've, and I've had, you know, and, and you, you do clinics as well. You know that there are times where you get into a spot and it's like, boy, I'm going to have to make this up. You know, I, I, so I got to make something up here because this isn't going well. And somebody may be looking at that going, well, you know, this is, this is a mess. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I know it too. And somehow we got to, you know, but you, you find a way through it. And it may not have been pretty, and and it and it wasn't as good as I maybe could do it now, but it was as, it was the best I could do then, and so I feel like that's kind of the best answer I can give to that. You know, I don't I don't I don't look at things as failures very often. Uh, speaking of the clinics, like you said, you just get into a mess or something or other. Have you found that because they say in order to learn something really well, you should teach it. And have you, I, what I've found at clinics is I'll be explaining something that's going on in front of me. And because I'm explaining it out loud to a group of people, I will get a deeper insight. I probably wouldn't have got if I'd have just been doing it, but explaining sometimes like a deeper meaning will appear itself. <laughs> It'll come out my yeah, mouth and, comes I'll come, out of, and I'll kind yeah. of go, I didn't even know I knew that. I knew I didn't comes even out know. of nowhere. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely. I, I completely agree. You know, you'll be saying something. I don't. I I have a book out um, that's called "Something You Said," and it's a, all it is, is just a bunch of quotes that students sent me to 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 compile compile into this book, and it's stuff I said apparently. <laughs> but you know, I'll read it and go, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Cool, you know. But I don't remember saying it. That's pretty profound. Yeah. I wonder what. Yeah. What Zen well, master said that one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that was me. You know, yeah. So it's, it's like, it just comes out of nowhere. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, you're, you'll be talking and, and it's like, this is what I'm, I think I'm seeing. And, and you get it right. You know, hopefully you get it right anyway. So yeah, I, I know exactly what you're okay. talking about. You're good. It's not just me. Okay. Next question. <laughs> Most worthwhile thing you've ever put your time into or something that changed the course of your life? Um, I would say um, family. I would start there. Um, you know, the time that I've spent with my kids and my family and, you know, helping them grow up and, 
hopefully being able to do the right thing. And, you know, I'm really proud of all my kids. You know, they're, like I said, Ty's, Ty's a, a police officer and, and uh, our other son is a photographer out in LA and, and our daughter is raising four kids on her own and is an artist and photographer, you know, and they're all doing really well. And so, you know, I kind of feel like that's, that's, you know, one of the best things I've ever done. Um, other than that, you know, I, I have to admit, I think it's, I think it's, uh, my, my work in, in the martial arts, you know, and that really had a big impact on me, a huge impact and still, still does. And, and, uh, I use it every day and, uh, and it, I think it's helped me become a better person and, and, uh, it, in everything I do. So. Perfect. You mentioned woodwork a minute ago. I didn't mention that one at the start when I said all these other things you can do. What, you, what, tell me about the woodwork. Um, I build guitars. Oh, I've been watching your guitar building on Facebook. Yeah. Tell me about that. That looks pretty cool. I started, um, it's a long story, but I, I started building guitars and working on guitars years and years ago. I, 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 I knew, I knew nothing about working on guitars and I took my guitar and it was an acoustic guitar to have some little minor adjustment made. And, and they made the adjustment and it was $50. And back then that was a lot of money. And I, and I said, you know, that's a lot of money for just this little bit that you did. And he said, well, if you don't like it, do it yourself next time. And I thought, well, don't think I won't. And I went to the library back then, you know, where you had to get your information from the library, took out all the books that I could find on building and working on guitars and, then I went to, uh, I bought some old guitars at yard sales and stuff and took them apart, put them back together. And, you know, a lot of guitars that wouldn't play when I got them would play after I was done. And I, had, I just ended up, that led to one thing or another. And I ended up uh, actually owning a little guitar shop. Um, it was the guy that, the guy that I, that charged me $50. I took all of his uh, repair business from him and i wasn't trying do it yourself (laughs) i wasn't i wasn't trying you know i wasn't trying to i just i was in a band at the time i started working on the guys in the band's guitars and and they sent their friends to me and their friends came along and next thing you know and so the guy sold me his guitar shop and uh but anyway that turned into building guitars at the time it was mostly acoustics and i did some electrics and now with the downtime that we had with the pandemic um, we lost about three months worth of work. I just started building again. So, yeah, so it's something I really enjoy doing and it's a great, and that's something I'm doing better now than I was doing back then because of the way, the way I'm living, I think. Right. So, yeah, it's funny how you, you pick up something you used to do and I've, I've found this something you haven't done for 25 years and you can now do it better than you did it when you were doing it before be because of all the, the ways you've changed the way you look at things, the way you think about things. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 so the skill is all in your head. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I re- I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I've sold some guitars now to, to some folks and I've got two on the bench right now that I'm working on. 
So I got one that's going off to a friend down in Denver and, and, uh, one that I'm keeping for myself. So. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with the next question here. And this question, uh, from the book, it has a caveat. It's about occupation. It's about what advice would you give people about to enter your occupation as, and, and the caveat in the book says, most of us are going to have occupations that are kind of out of the ordinary. And uh, before we even do this, what would you say your occupation is? Like it's, it's, it's weird when you, when you do what we do, it's, there's no defining, this is what you, this is what you do. Um, well, I'll tell you what I put on, when I put on the card on the airplane, when we're flying in <laughs> okay. someplace. Okay. Cause I got one too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, educator. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's what I, you know, or teacher. And so that's what I, I feel like I'm doing. So. Yeah, I do. I do that a lot. Uh, going through airports, going to other countries, because I, I know what you can and can't take. And I clean my boots off before we go and all that stuff. But if you put, right. if you put horse trainer, they want to go through and sanitize yeah. everything. And I've already done that. It's not like I'm mm-hmm. dragging bits of dirt right. into countries I shouldn't go into. Well, especially going back to Australia yeah. or New Zealand. Yeah. 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 They're, yeah. Got to be careful with it. So anyway, what advice would you give for people about to enter your occupation, whatever that occupation is? <laughs> um, don't take yourself too seriously. Learn as much as you can and give stuff away. That's what I would say. There you go. For you listeners of the podcast, I, I did a big chat about the, the giving thing. I think when I answered all the questions. So what I did in one of my podcasts, Mark, was I got all 20 questions and went through them. Uh-huh. And there was a big cool. part of it about giving. It was actually yeah. in that. Yeah. 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 That's a good thing. Yeah. That's it. It's really, really important. It's really important. Yeah. And especially the, the giving with no expectation of getting yeah. something back because otherwise it's not the right kind of giving it's like but yeah you're like, not you're not giving that yeah, it's like wrong thing hard right thing easy it, yeah. it's all your yeah interpretation of okay so what is one common myth about your profession you wish to debunk that horses think like people do that horses are uh the idea of respect and disrespect i mean it's it, that is me clapping right now everybody <laughs> Clap with me right here. There is no <laughs> respect and disrespect. I love that. Very good. You know, for me, it's, you know, what it is, it's, it's either understanding or a lack thereof. There is, they don't have the capability to understand the concept of respect or disrespect, you know, and if anybody's interested in, you know, look, look up some of Steve Peters information and, um, but they just don't have the part of the brain that allows for that, that, that way of thinking. What it is, is it just boils down to either a lack of understanding or they understand. So if you, if you replace the word respect with understanding, disrespect with lack of understanding, you're going to get a lot farther ahead. Yeah. I think that would, that would be the biggest myth I would say. That's a very, very good one. Yeah. I think that when you, when you replace those words with, 
other words, it, it really changes your perspective on what the horse is doing. And, you know, as you know, when you change your perspective, you change your energy, you change your energy. Yep. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's all the observer effect. It's all that quantum physics, quantum mechanics stuff. Yeah. And, it, you know, the idea behind respect and disrespect now that that's my horse doing something to me. You know, if he's, if my horse is disrespecting me, then he's doing something to me, which means I'm going to have to do something to him. So, you know, now we've got a real problem that if you're talking about understanding, well, under, if he doesn't understand, then that's, just, that's easy. I can fix that. I can help him understand. I can find a way to help him, but I can't find a way to make him respect me. So, so that, that's, I think that's a difference too. people. Some people want to fix their horse and some people want to help their horse. Yeah. And when you, when you yeah. help, when you're trying to help them rather than fix them, help them is is you're trying to help them feel better about the situation, fix them is you're trying to stop them from doing you're that. You're going to change what they're, yeah, you're trying to change what they're doing. Right. You know, you're not. Without changing how you, they you feel. Can, yeah, you can change what they're doing without changing the way they feel. And, and you know, and, and a lot of people do that. And so that, you know, and, and if that's what you need to do, then I guess that's what you need to do. But there's another way around it, you know. So. Before the, the lockdown, I was in New Zealand in late 2019 and I had a clinic. I, a new group was coming into the arena, I think. So I have, you know, I have four different groups during the day and I'd gone to the restroom when the, the new group was coming in. And when I got back in the arena, I then turned my microphone back on. I hope you've never made the mistake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, always make sure you turn your microphone off before you uh, go. Yeah. Uh, I always turn everything off. I turned the PA off. I turned my oh, microphone off. <laughs> um, I came back in the arena and there was this one off the track thoroughbred or warm, but I can't remember, kind of on the end of the lead rope. No, she wasn't running around. She was standing still, but she was screaming, whinnying her head off. Just mm. poor thing was in mm. a bit of a state. And I walked in the arena and I, and I pointed at that horse and I said, I could fix that. I'm not going to, but I could fix mm. that. And the point I was trying to make was I could make that go away behavior mm. go away i'm not going to make the behavior go away. i'm going to solve the feeling behind that behavior and i will help them with the feeling behind that behavior and the behavior will disappear but i'm not gonna fix it mm -hmm. i really i really think that whole when and i used to be in the fix mentality when you're in the fix mentality it's it is yeah it, it is a quite a judgmental type way of looking at things mm-hmm Okay, you got one last question here. Oh, you got two last questions because I'm going to ask you one of my own. Um, okay, what quality do you admire in a person? Um, that's that's kind of an easy one for me. I would say um, uh, Bushido, and Bushido is a um, is a code that was. I mean, it's. It's it's not just in uh, in martial arts or or in uh, it it stems from the samurai days, um, but it's not just it's not just there. I mean, there's you know in the, in Europe it's you know chivalry, I guess if you want to call it that. But there's there's seven you know tenets to bushido, and it's just it's just the code that you live by, you know. Um, so it's the, you know, it's, it's, 
anyway, that's that that that's what I would say. It's that it's people who who are honorable and and uh, and honest and, um, and trustworthy and you know that you know they're they're bringing their best selves to whatever situation they're in and uh, at any given time and so for me it's it that's i would say that's that's what it is so and the question so your wife picked all these questions but the one question that your wife did not pick which is i've uh, this is podcast probably 30 now i think i haven't had and I've probably had 20 guests, maybe. All but one of them have chosen this one question, which your wife didn't choose, but what is your relationship like with fear? Um, hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't think about it that much. Um Well, that's a relationship in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think about fear that much. Um, I, yeah, it's a really good question. I would, I think fear comes again from, from when we hit the end of our chain of knowledge. So when we, when we, when we, the things that we understand when we get to the end of our understanding, then instinct kicks in and fear is one of those instincts. You know, it's, I, I really don't think about it that much to be honest with you. And I, and I don't, I don't really get fearful that often uh, that I can think of. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm not answering this question very well, but, um, but I honestly, I just, I don't give it much thought ever. So I just, uh, um, that's probably why she didn't pick the question. Uh, but I don't, I don't really think about it that much. It's, um, uh, I understand that if I'm, if I'm starting to feel that way, um, it's because I'm getting to the end of what I understand about this situation. and if we accept the fact that I'm getting to the end of what I understand, then I need to go back. In, I need to go into a different mode. I need to start. I, I need to start slowing down, and I need to start picking up on little smaller things. Or if it's in a conversation, I need to back myself up. You know, and I missed something earlier in the conversation that's gotten us to this point, or whatever. You know, and if it's like working with a horse. You know, I, I don't have a lot of fear around horses. Um, there's really only one that I've ever worked with where I could actually say, you know, this horse is scaring me a little bit because um, its behavior was so unpredictable. But um, but at this at this point, you've seen so much and you've done so much that um, that you don't really kind of get to the end of your chain of knowledge in other words you might see something that you may maybe never seen before but you have enough to back to you have enough in there in the computer 
to be able to work your way through it. Okay, maybe I've seen something similar to this, or I've done something or whatever. Then I'm I'm going to try a couple of things here and see if we get a some kind of a response in a positive direction and see if that helps. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I just don't think about it that much, uh, you know, and. You know, from a physical standpoint, I don't, you know, things don't worry me that much. If I fall, I know how to fall now. I'm being thrown on the floor hard a few times. So, so. so do you think, okay, so do you think, um, you think the Aikido has helped with, well, I'll tell you what I'm getting at here. So I had Jonathan Field on the podcast a while ago and Jonathan, we were at uh, a horse expo somewhere and went out to dinner one night and he was telling me that he, at some point in time in his life, he realized he was scared of being punched in the face. So he started taking <laughs> up boxing lessons and started going to boxing three nights a week. And he, and he looked at me and he said, no, you get punched in the face enough. It doesn't bother you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he, actually, he said, and he'd had half a bottle of wine. He, he said to me, he said, you want to punch me in the, we're in the restaurant, this steakhouse. He said, you want to punch me in the face right now? Well, you can if you like. I'm like, no. <laughs> no so do you think. Do you think like with the Aikido, with the, the physical part of that, if you were kind of afraid of some of those things in the beginning that you, that kind of eases your fear because you've been there and it's, because fear is, a lot of times fear is your thoughts about what it might be, not actually what it is itself. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. the unknown. You know, you're afraid of what, what might happen, you know, and, and, you know, if you if you if you it kind of goes back to one of the things that we we first started about uh talking about you know the idea that there's these things out there and all you have to do is take a hold of them and if you want to and i think that that's the same thing when you have enough information you can make something up in a situation to to get you through it you know uh i don't you know i've trained in several different arts i'm not good at a lot of them i'm pretty good at aikido um i'm by no means a master at it but i could if something came up on the street i could probably take care of myself and if and if a situation came up i could probably make something up to get out of it to to some degree or another and so so i don't really fear situations like that too too often and it's kind of like that in in my life in general, you know. I, I just feel like I can, at this stage, I, I, you know, maybe I'd maybe I'm going to run into a situation where that I can't do that, but, and then then I'm going to learn something, which would be awesome. But, but in general, I just feel like even if I don't know what's what to do, I can maybe find a way through it. You're right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Mark just said, it'll be awesome if I run into a situation to where I get afraid because I'll learn something. That's basically what I got that from there. And, and that, is a, that is a way to look at life that is the total opposite of the way you could look at life where you're worried about everything. You know, you, you, seem, to, you, seem, to embrace, you seem to embrace things like that. And I think that's probably why you're, uh, you know, you've had all the success with, all the different things that that you've done in your life i think we might wrap it up there because we've been going for quite a while so once again people want to find out more about you want to buy books 
DVD, stuff like that, where where can they go to find out? Um, yeah, we uh, the website is markrashid.com. We have a page, two pages on Facebook. Uh, one of them is called Considering the Horse Mark Rashid. And the other one is called Considering the Horse Mark Rashid Classroom. And uh, the classroom is a is a kind of a monthly ten dollar monthly fee, and people can go in there and and uh, we usually have a couple hours worth of DV, uh, videos in there every month. We ch- we change them out, and there's um, you know little like ten minute training things, and we do a Q and A and um, different. There's Chrissy has things on on there. Uh, so quite a little bit of information on there. And, and um, so, yeah, so that's there. And uh, that's what we have. That's what we have. Your, available. your books are your on books. there too, or do they, they, somewhere. our books, are, yeah, our books are on the website um, books. And I think there might be one or two DVDs left. We've put all of those right, online yeah. now. So uh, for the most part, uh, I think there's a, there's still a few, maybe two or three DVDs that people can get. And um, the books are on there. We've got some music CDs. I was just uh, about to ask that about there. that. Like, is there any music CDs? Yeah, we've got two. In fact, we are working on a third one, what we were doing today, just before I came in here. I'm sitting actually in, in our oh, studio. Okay. It's our recording studio. I don't know if you can see, there's a couple I of guitar cases. Guitar case there. back there, yep. Yeah. And um, so there are right now there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven guitars in here in in this room. And uh, so, yeah, so we've been we've been busy. We've got another. It'll probably be out sometime this summer. Excellent. Do you do you write your own music? Yeah. 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 Again, it's one of those things, right? You are the Renaissance man. There's nothing this guy can't do. Pull it out of the sky. Yeah. Well. You know what? There's nothing that anybody can do. We're all we're all in the same boat. That's right. That's right. Just take what you want, man. It's yep. all there. It's, it's all available. Well, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast with me. I really, I feel I feel the same way, brother. It's been really nice to visit with you again, and uh, I hope to catch up with you down the road someplace. And please do come to. Uh, to one of our Ibato deals here. You're more than welcome. And uh, we'd love I'd to have love you. To and it's on me. I'd love to know more about so. it. So anyway, thanks so much yeah. for you guys at home listening. Thanks for joining us on the Journey On podcast. And we'll catch you on the next Thanks episode. for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.